Well, this morning, um, we are continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. Um, We are up to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Two weeks ago, as we began looking at the body of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, well, we saw that Paul doesn't really take much time. He doesn't waste any time to get into the nitty-gritty, to get into the heart of what it is that he wants to talk to the Ephesians about. He wants to get straight to it as to what he wants to communicate. We see that Paul begins his letter to Ephesians in verses 3 right through to verse 14, and he does so by carefully crafting out an expression, a very heartfelt expression of praise to God for his amazing, tremendous work in salvation. That's really what he does in verses 3 to 14. He he, he just crafts out this heartfelt expression of praise to God for what he has accomplished. And what's more... Paul wants to demonstrate in, this, in the body of his letter, the first part of the letter which we've been going through, he wants to demonstrate to us how our salvation as Christians, it encompasses the work of the Godhead. It encompasses the combined work of the Trinity. Paul wants us to see how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together to accomplish the salvation which we are now recipients of, the salvation which now has been gifted to us. Beginning with the role of God the Father, we saw in verses 3 to 6 that Paul explained that our salvation was purposed by the Father, which means that even before the creation of the universe, God elected us. He chose us. He predestined us to become children of God to be adopted into his family, and to grow in Christ-likeness. We were purposed by the Father. But then in addition to being purposed by the Father, we saw last week in verses 7 to to 12, we saw there that Paul explained the role of the second person of the Godhead. He explained to us the work and the role of Jesus in our salvation. That we have not only been purposed by the Father, but that we have also been purchased by the Son. And we looked at how the the work of Jesus upon the cross, that that was the provision for what it is that the Father had purposed. Whereas today, verses 13 to 14, well, Paul now wants us to look at the, the working of the third person in the Godhead. He wants us to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. He wants us to understand that We have not only been purposed by the Father, not only purchased by the Son, but that we are also being preserved by the Holy Spirit. Paul wants for us to recognize that the ministry of the Holy Spirit makes salvation the reality or a reality to the believer. You see, as good as God's plan of salvation may be, and as good as God's provision for salvation may be, Well, that is unable to be a benefit to us unless that plan and that provision has been rightly appropriated to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, by way of an outline of today's study, we're going to break today's study and today's passage into, guess what, three main parts. Surprise, surprise. We're going to see firstly in verse 13, we're going to see the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. Secondly, in verse 14, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. And thirdly, also in verse 14, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit sustains our salvation. 
What part does the Spirit play in our lives? Well, there are three things here. He seals, he guarantees, he sustains. And so, let's begin looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and salvation. Let's start by giving our attention now to our Bibles, verse 13. And this is where Paul explains to us that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. Notice it there in your Bibles, beginning in verse 13. It says, In him, about Jesus, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now let's just stop there for a moment. The first thing to note here is the timing of the Holy Spirit's work. The timing uh, at which the Holy Spirit's work comes into play in terms of our salvation. The Father's work, where did that take place? That took place before the foundation of the world. We were planned purpose before the foundation of the world. The Son's work, where did God the Son, where did Jesus' work take place? Well, that took place historically as well, over 2,000 years ago upon the cross. Whereas what Paul's reminding us of here is that the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work, it takes place in the life of the believer in the here and the now. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that the Holy Spirit comes, he, he changes a, a person's heart, he changes their heart through regeneration. And what the Holy Spirit does is that he enables a person to respond positively to the gospel. And when they respond positively to the gospel, that brings about their conversion. They're going from, from light, uh, from darkness to light. But notice in verse 13 that upon hearing the gospel and trusting in Christ as a result of that, at that point of conversion, Notice there in verse 13 that Paul clearly says that a believer is then sealed with the Holy Spirit. He awakens us, he enables us to respond positively to the gospel message, and at that point of conversion, we see there is a sealing work which takes place. Now, of course, the immediate question that arises from this is, well, what does it mean to be sealed? You know, first thing that comes to mind for me is like, Red seal, it's a kind of toothpaste that I use. <laughs> Red seal, the sealing of something. What does it mean to be sealed? When our hearts were changed through regeneration, when we were born again, when we responded positively to the gospel, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit came and, and, and sealed us at that point? Well, the first thing to know is that this idea of the Holy Spirit sealing the believer, this is not an isolated thought in the mind of the Apostle Paul. In fact, there are two other places in Scripture where Paul actually states that the believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The first is in this exact letter, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. And this is where, where Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's a second place where we see the same kind of connection, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, and this is what he says. He says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God, who has also sealed us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Very similar wording to what it is that we see Paul talking about here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. And so the obvious idea here, obviously this idea of being sealed by the Holy Spirit, 
This is not just a, a one-off thought of the Apostle Paul, but what we see here is that it was a truth that was firmly etched in Paul's theological thinking, in his theological understanding. However, we still come back to the question, <clears throat> what does it mean to be sealed? What does it actually mean for a believer to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, the place where we need to start for us to really understand what this means is really by considering the Greek word that is used or translated as sealed in our English um, Bibles here, our English translations. How was the word sealed used in that day? Well, the Greek word sealed, which we, which we translate as sealed, well, it means to stamp. It means to, to, to stamp uh, for the purpose of security or preservation. Something that is stamped for the purpose of security or preservation. A seal was a marking. It was a marking that was used for the purpose of authenticating something, for the purpose of showing ownership, and also for the purpose of protection. For instance, historically, when a Roman official would send off a letter, they would seal that letter. They would seal the envelope, and they would do so by pouring a, um, a, a drop of melted wax on the, on, the, on the outside of that envelope, and then with their signet ring, they would then press their unique symbol or their unique marking of their signet ring into that hot wax, and what that would do is that it would leave a unique indentation upon that wax, so that when that wax dried, what you would have is a unique um, uh, symbol, a unique marking that represented the person who wrote the letter. So that when the letter was received by the person who it was written to, well, the person could firstly authenticate the ownership of the letter. Authentic authentication could take place. They'd flip that letter over, they would see the seal, a very unique seal that was on there, they would see the mark of that signet ring. But in addition to authenticating the letter of who, the, who, who it was sent from or who, who it came from, well, secondly, a person could also um, authenticate the, the security of the letter. After all, if the envelope had been opened along the way, if the mailman got a little bit nosy and decided to open it up and take a little peek inside, well, what would take place? Well, that ring, the, 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 um, the, the, the wax which had been left there would be cracked. It would be broken. It would signify that someone's gone snooping inside this letter before it's got to the original uh, recipient of the letter. And so that was one way, historically, <clears throat> that a person would think about a seal. It was one that the purpose of marking authentication, ownership, protection in the way that people would, you know, send, receive letters. But there was another way that illustrates this idea of being sealed. And this, is, this would have been something very, um, uh, very familiar to the people that Paul was actually writing to in that, at that particular time. It would have been something very familiar to those who lived in Ephesus, those whom Paul is writing to here, and also those who lived in Corinth, the other, which happens to be, by the way, the, the two passages that talk about being sealed by the Holy Spirit well, it been been very familiar to those two groups of people. Ephesus and Corinth, they were major centers in what was known as the lumber industry of that day. You know, the cutting down of trees, the gathering of trees, bringing them and moving them around from place to place. Well, those two places were major centers of the lumber industries in that day. 
what would take place is that a raft of logs would be brought in from the Black Sea. So a big raft of logs from the Black Sea. And a notice would go out to all of the lumber merchants. You know, all the lumber merchants would get noticed. Hey, there's another big, you know, raft or a shipment of, of logs which are coming in from the Black Sea. And what they would do is they would then go out and they would go and check these things out. The companies would send out their men. They would look over the logs which had been brought into their harbours, so to speak, and they would check them out. And then after they checked them out, they would then make their selection. They wouldn't just be taking the whole lot, but they'd go around and they'd find individual logs making their selection. And once a lumber merchant had made their selection, what that lumber merchant would do is that he would pay a deposit, and then following the paying of a deposit, well, he would then cut a unique wedge in each log that he agreed to purchase. Here's the deposit, and then he had a unique cutting, a a unique wedge which was cut out of the log, which would show, hey, this belongs to, you know, so-and-so down the road. Now, this cutting out of the log, this unique wedge which would be taken out of the log, this, were, this is what was commonly known as the seal. The seal. The, the logs might not be drawn out of the water for you know, many, many weeks, maybe even months, but because their logs had been marked with a seal, a unique seal, well, this kept the logs specifically reserved, specifically secured, specifically for the rightful owner. So that when the logs finally reached their destination, all the owners would have to do is they'd have to look around for the logs, pick out the logs that had their seal on them, and what that would do is it would prove the ownership of those logs, and then they would go ahead and they'd draw out their own, draw those logs out of the water. Now, it's with these two pictures in mind, the sending of letters and the seal with the signet ring, the, the, the wedge taken out of the logs and the lumber industry. It's with these two pictures in mind, it doesn't really take too much to try to put together what it is that, that Paul is wanting to communicate here. With these two illustrations in mind, it doesn't take too much to try to work out the truth that Paul is wanting to communicate to us in relation to the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, this actually acts as God's seal upon us. The Holy Spirit himself is the authentication that we are truly children of God. The Holy Spirit within us, it implies ownership. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God is saying to us, this one belongs to me. There is ownership. As believers, we are reserved and we are secured for God alone. Just as the unique wedge was cut off the log that would exclusively reserve the log for a specific lumber merchant, well, so too, the indwelling Holy Spirit reserves us exclusively for God so that it's impossible for us to be taken by another. We see this truth elsewhere in Scripture. We see God's sovereign, preserving work, authenticating, preserving work in the life of the believer elsewhere in Scripture as well. For instance, in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It's 
kind of like the same kind of idea if you can imagine the lumber merchant going, once I take that wedge out, once I take it out, that is mine. That, that belongs to me. No one else can come along and try to claim it as their own. That belongs to me. And in the same way, that is what the Holy Spirit does to us. It, it reserves us for God. It authenticates us as children of God. Then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 and 39, a similar thing. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so do we see what the seal of the Holy Spirit does within our lives? The seal of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's God's mark of ownership. It's God's mark of authenticity. It's God's mark of security when it comes to our salvation. Now, what this means for us is that it provides us as believers with reassurance. We can be reassured of something. I can't be reassured whether we're all going to be alive at the end of today. I can't even give you reassurance that we're all going to be alive at the end of the sermon. I don't know. There is one thing I can give you reassurance of by, by the authority of the word of God. And that is that we belong to God. He's marked us with his Holy Spirit as a mark of authenticity. And in that, there is security when it comes to our salvation. If God has put his seal on me, then my salvation is secure. If God has put his seal on me, my destiny is sure. If God has put his seal on me, my future hope is certain. Just as the lumber merchant would pull from the water those logs which were his, well, so too God will one day pull us up from this world, all those who have his seal. It's very, very easy for God to be able to divide those who are his and those who are not. Those who have the spirit are his. Those who do not are not his. Listen to the words of Jesus, John chapter 6 verses 37 to 39, as he speaks about his personal interest in each one whom the Father has chosen for salvation and that not one of them will be lost. Not a single one whom God has chosen will be lost. It says in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Talking about those who are chosen. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that, all, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Doesn't that give you a bit of security? I mean, practically speaking, I guess technically speaking, a, a lumber merchant who has his log, he's cut the wedge out, it could possibly go walkabouts, right? It's not 100% secure. There could be a a log thief. I don't know how you do that, but there could be a, a log thief. Um, there could be that there's just a mix-up or something, and maybe the log floated around the other way, and you couldn't see the seal in the, in the same kind of way, and someone else whacks a seal, their seal out of the log is to mark ownership. Technically, possibly, that could possibly happen in the, in the log illustration. But what is Jesus telling us here? He's saying that there's going to be no mix-up with those whom God has chosen for salvation. There is, there is no, there's going to be no mix-up when it comes to the, all those whom the Father has given to the Son. And he makes it very clear, of all that he has given me, I should lose 
nothing but raise it up in the last, last day. And so what are we seeing here? What are we seeing here in terms of our salvation as a believer? What is the point that, that Paul wants us to understand by saying that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, he wants us to understand that our salvation is being sovereignly preserved by God. Therefore, our salvation is secure. It's secure. Well, moving on, not only does Paul tell us that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation, we see secondly in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. Let's give your attention now to the beginning of verse 14. Notice how Paul continues talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice in your Bibles there, he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Now, of course, at this point, we would want to be asking ourselves, well, what does it mean to guarantee? What does this have to do? What are the question at this point is, has to do with the word guarantee. What does the word guarantee mean? Well, the word guarantee, it means a pledge. It means a down payment. That's what the word means in the Greek. The word was used more often today. We use the word deposit. You know, you, when you go and you, you put a deposit down on something, you know, I'm going to go and I'm gonna, I want to um, purchase a house, I want to purchase a property, I want to purchase something, I'm going to put down a deposit, I'm going to put down a pledge, I'm going to put down a down payment, or as the word that's given here, I will want to put down uh, a guarantee. And when you put a deposit down on something, what are you doing? What do you do when you put a deposit down on something? Well, you're communicating your intention, aren't you? You're communicating an intention that I am going to follow through with this transaction. I am going to follow through with this purchase. When a person is looking to buy a house, when a person is looking to buy a section, what do they do? Well, there's always a possibility when they're looking to buy, there's always a possibility that they're going to pull out. There's always a possibility that they might just change their mind and and not go through with the deal. That is until they have paid the deposit. Because when the down payment is made, what does that communicate? It communicates that, hey, I've made up my mind. All the deciding factors have been taken out of the way now. I've made up my mind. This transaction is going to go all the way. In other words, there's something binding which takes place when a deposit is given. Something binding. Because from the seller's point of view, well, that seller, they have to take whatever that thing is off the market. They can't sell it to anyone else. They have to take it off the market because once the deposit has been laid down, once the deposit has been paid, once the deposit has been settled, well, they are no longer able to sell that thing to another party. That's from the seller's point of view. But from the buyer's point of view, they are now committed. They are now committed to follow through with the purchase. The deposit makes their commitment binding. I mean, think about the lumber merchant. You know, as soon as he, he made the, the down payment, as soon as he made the guarantee, the, the, he paid the deposit, well, those logs, at that point, they became his property. Yes, he didn't take them home immediately, but at that point that he paid the, the deposit, they belonged to him. Now, even though there would be a long period of time, the guarantee of the deposit was a guarantee 
that that lumber merchant would be coming back for those logs as well. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit is the deposit. The Holy Spirit within us as the believer is the down payment. It is the guarantee in our lives as Christians. When the Spirit comes to dwell within us, it's like God is saying, you are mine. I have made my decision. I am not going to pull out of this. I am committed to following through with this transaction all the way through. From this point forward. We see this very much in Paul's mind in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's where he says concerning believers, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun the good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now we get in the picture here. God is committed to following through with whatever it is that he initiates. God doesn't begin something and then pull out or drop out at a later stage. In other words, what God begins, God always finishes. He's unlike you and I. How many of us have started projects where we just kind of pull out? We lose motivation, we lose um, uh, focus, we lose whatever it might be, and we kind of pull out. It goes off to the side. Well, not so with God. Whatever God begins, he most certainly always finishes. He always brings to completion, and so it is with our salvation. In terms of our salvation, he, he has demonstrated that commitment by giving us the Holy Spirit as the down payment, as the deposit, as the guarantee for the inheritance, as Paul says there, that awaits us. Listen to how Paul states the commitment of God to follow through what it is that he has purposed. Listen to how he he states it in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We see a commitment of God. It starts right at the very beginning. And if he, if he purposes it there, he ensures that the next step happens and the next step happens and the next step happens until completion. So it is with our salvation. Well, <clears throat> moving on, not only does the Holy Spirit seal our salvation, not only does the Holy Spirit guarantee our salvation. Well, thirdly, finally in verse 14, we see that the Holy Spirit also sustains our salvation. Putting it in the form of a question, what is the duration of the Holy Spirit's sealing, guaranteeing work in our lives? What is the duration of that? How far will the Holy Spirit preserve our salvation between this point now and when we enter into eternity with God? Well, Paul wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit's preserving work, it will get us all the way there. Because notice how Paul puts it in the last bit of verse 14 there. He says, until, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Do we see what he's saying here? He is saying that the sealing work of the Holy Spirit and the deposit of the Holy Spirit within us This will sustain our salvation right through until the finishing line. You see, just as a seal or a deposit out of upon certain logs would ensure that 
that lumber merchant is coming back for them. By the mere fact that they had a, a seal taken out of them, it was saying, this belongs to someone, this, this in turn shows us someone will come back to them. Well, in a similar way, the Holy Spirit, who is a seal and a deposit of our salvation, he is the security that we are God's possession. We belong to God. And that one day, he will come back and return for us. Isn't that a tremendous truth? Isn't it a tremendous truth when we see the work of the Spirit in our lives, when he's changing us, when he's molding us, when he's making us more like Christ? Yes, it should give us, you know, you know, you know, thankfulness for the, for the present. I'm not the person that I used to be by the grace of God. But when we see that work of the Spirit within our lives, it reminds us of something else. And that that which the Father has begun, that that which God has begun, it, he will see through to completion. It gives us that security going, I am truly his. I am truly a child of God. He will see me through until the end. What a tremendous truth that this is. I don't know if there's a more comforting truth out there. Can you think of a more comforting truth than that right now? Is there, anything, is there a more comforting truth than that on the face of this earth? As mentioned, there is not certainty in anything else that we do on this earth. There really isn't. We don't know if we're going to wake up tomorrow morning. We don't know if we're going to have a job by the end of this week. We don't know if there's going to be a huge COVID breakout and, and lockdowns by, you know, who knows, by the end of tomorrow. So many things are out of our hands. So much uncertainty. So many things, even in our own individual lives right now, that are just so up in the air. So uncertain. But isn't it reassuring to, to reflect and to ponder on the fact that there is, there is something far greater than our jobs, than our security, than even our lives? And that is the fact that God will sustain our salvation right to the very end. That is something that we can take to the bank. That is something that we can say, you know what, I can rest my hope entirely on this. This is something that will not change because God has said it. And if God has said it, it will most certainly come to pass. In saying this, <clears throat> there are some. There are some who mistakenly think that their salvation is somewhat dependent upon them. They think it's dependent upon them in, in some way. They think that it's up to them, themselves, to try to, to make it to the end. They think to themselves that somehow, yes, God might save me by his grace, but now it's up to the work of the arm of the flesh to maintain that salvation within their lives. There are some who think that their salvation is so dependent upon them that they can somehow mess up God's plan of salvation in their lives. They use phrases, phrases that you'll never find in the Bible. I'll give you one of them. Phrases that we never find in the Bible. One of the phrases is, losing your salvation. You will never find that phrase. You will never find that concept anywhere in Scripture. Apart from those who would proof text. A proof text means that you just throw a verse out there, not really interpreting it in context, not really understanding the Greek or the grammar or the historical backdrop or anything like that. You just see something and what immediately comes to your mind is you say, I think, that, I, I think that verse might back up the idea that I have in my thinking and so I will use that verse. That is what you call proof texting. And don't get me wrong, there'll be plenty of people who want to try to proof text 
wrongly taking scripture out of context to try to prove the point that salvation is somewhat in some way dependent upon man that it's up to us to sustain our salvation but we will not find phrases or concepts like that in our New Testament you'll never find such a term never find such a concept that that supports that in the New Testament to be honest I I don't really like that phrase, you know, personally just don't like that phrase, losing your salvation. I mean, to me, it sounds just a little bit too casual. You know, I kind of lost my car keys and I lost my cell phone. Oops, I lost my my salvation as well. I I mean, at at what point, at what point have you sinned so much that God's grace is just not enough? At, At what point does your, you know, the, the, the faith in Christ, at what point does that erode so much to the point where, hey, it's no longer valid as a valid response? Scripture doesn't talk about that. And let me, leave, let me just mention this and insert this right now. If, it, if there was such a thing as a Christian losing their salvation, I lost my car keys, my cell phone, whoops, salvation, where have you gone? Better go and find it. If there was a a concept that a Christian, a true Christian could somehow be saved and then not saved from God's perspective? Well, that is a very serious matter, isn't it? Isn't that a critical matter? In fact, if if that was true, you would expect for there to be extensive discussion, extensive instruction going, you know what? Forget these other minor things. This is something that we need to lay out so specifically and in so many different areas, you'd expect every single New Testament author to be, be writing something about this. It would be so critical, so important. You'd expect much elaboration on this so that we, wouldn't, we would be aware of that, so we wouldn't go down that track. The question has to be asked, well, why isn't that not the case? Why is it that only proof texts can be used to try to validate that position? You never find such a term or even a concept that supports that idea. And what puzzles me when a person says that a believer can lose their salvation is simply this. How can you lose something which was never yours to begin with in the first place? How can you lose something that was never yours to begin with in the first place? After all, salvation is whose idea? Salvation is not our idea, but it's God's. What did we see at the beginning of this passage? We were purposed by the Father. But not only that, salvation was not accomplished by us, right? It was accomplished by God. We were purchased by the Son. And finally, salvation is not ours to sustain. Instead, what is Paul telling us here in the Scriptures? He says, we are preserved by the Holy Spirit, having been sealed by Him, having Him being our deposit or our guarantee for the future. For a person to say, did you know that you could lose your salvation? It's kind of in many ways like a log that's had a seal that's been taken out of it, saying to another log, hey log, it's all up to us to make sure that we get taken out of the water. We're floating down the water here, but it's all up to us to make sure that we get taken out. So you just hold on tight. You make sure you don't mess this thing up. It's all dependent upon us. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? 
I mean, if a lumber merchant has chosen the log, sealed the log, put down a deposit for the log, why in the world would the log itself ever think that its future is all dependent upon itself? Why would the log ever think in that kind of way? And in a similar way, the truth that Paul wants, us to, to, wants to communicate in today's passage is that the future of our salvation is secure. And the reason that we know that it is secure is because it's not dependent upon us, because it's dependent upon God. It's not dependent upon us, but it's dependent upon the Holy Spirit who has been given to us and who is sustaining us. Now, if you try to just consider for a moment what Paul is wanting to communicate here, verse, verse 3 down to verse 14, one unit of thought. We know that in the original language, verse 3 to verse 14 was one long sentence in the Greek. It's broken up into sentences in our English translation, but we know it's one complete thought of Paul's in the original language. If we consider verses 3 to 14, it's like God's wanting us to know what? It's like God is wanting us to know, believer, you are not an afterthought. Christian, I have gone to great lengths to bring you into my family. Child of God, I will ensure that you will be with me forever. That is the mind of God. That is the mind of God that wants to be communicated to each and every single one of us. We are not an afterthought. Great lengths have gone to be brought into God's family and God will ensure that we remain with him for all eternity. If you want one word to describe God's involvement in our salvation, it would have to be the word sovereignty. And we see this, don't we? We see this. As we read through verses 3 to 14, what do we see in terms of our salvation? We don't see a man-centered salvation, do we? We don't see man at the center of it. We do not see man choosing God. We do not see man involved in purchasing or attaining his salvation. We do not see man who is involved in maintaining or sustaining his salvation either. But what do we see here? We see a sovereign God. A sovereign God who is working all things together according to his good, gracious, sovereign purposes. This is true in our election. It's true with our redemption. And as we've seen in today's study, it is true concerning our perseverance as believers. As Christians, we cannot maintain our salvation any more than we could attain our salvation. We do not have the power to keep our salvation any more than we had the power to gain our salvation. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that God is both the author and he is the finisher. He is the one who began the good work in us, and because he began that good work in us, he will also see that work through until completion. God does not sovereignly save us just to go and put the ball in our court, leaving it up to us, ourselves, to try to keep ourselves saved until the end. But instead, what do we see when we look to Scripture? Well, as we saw last week, not only has God given us an inheritance for the future, talking about heaven, we saw last week that, that we are God's inheritance. We are the ones whom God has purposed to bring him much glory for all eternity. 
when he looks upon you, believer, and me as a believer, when he looks upon us, he goes, there is the means which will bring glory to my, to my, good, to the, to, to the, my grace and my mercy for all eternity. We are God's inheritance. And what's more, God has far, much, far too much concern for his own glory to leave the matter in our hands. Now, I don't know about you, but aren't we grateful that God didn't leave it in our hands? Aren't we grateful that our salvation is not completely up to us? Have you ever lived a portion of your Christian walk thinking to yourself that perhaps your salvation isn't secure? Have you ever lived a portion of your Christian walk thinking that, wow, I think it's kind of up to me in some kind of way? I know I have. The first year I was converted. I knew I was saved by grace alone, Christ alone. But I also knew that obedience was required. And I wasn't too sure how that obedience kind of played in with the grace of God. And I read the Ten Commandments and I thought, that's a standard. That is God's standard there. And I read the Sabbath and not having quite a a, a proper biblical understanding of a Sabbath, still thinking that on a a Sunday, which I thought was the Sabbath at that point, um, and thinking on a Sunday, I cannot do any kind of work. And I'd be very, very careful that in my thinking, my conscience was very, very careful about that until one day where I had to kind of exert myself a little bit. And I still remember riding on a motorbike out on a farm and there was a, there was a, a situation where a hydro scheme, and I won't go into the details, a hydro scheme needed some maintenance on. And, and I remember riding on, on, a, on a four-wheeler quad bike, first year as a Christian, going, please, Lord, Please keep me saved. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want my salvation to be ended right now because I need to do something. I need to exert myself right now. And, and again, misunderstandings of the Sabbath, misunderstandings of all these sorts of things, but I know how it feels. I know how it feels going from, from week to week, not knowing, hey, am I really in the Lamb's book of life? Am I really going to be seen to the end? But I also know what it feels like to understand the sovereignty of God according to the scriptures concerning my salvation and what security that I can have even when the the world is falling down around me even when there's sin in my life which I never thought would raise its ugly head I don't need to be looking to myself saying you've just got to try harder Jason I look to Jesus Christ I look to the cross And I go, I know that my future is secure. I know that I'm being kept by God. I know that I have all that is needed because of him. It's not me. It's not me losing my salvation as though I lose my car keys or anything else. But it's about me clinging on to the hope which God has placed within me. Aren't we glad Aren't we glad if, you, if, you're, if you're not certain, if, if you're not grateful as you were going through this study, go and talk to someone who feels that it's up to them to maintain their salvation. Go out with Glenn and Andy on the streets. And when they ask a person, you know, how, how does a person get to heaven? And they go, well, being a good person. And they ask them, well, how are you doing with that? Have you done enough good to get there? And there is never certainty. There, there, there is nothing that's there. Instead, there's insecurity. You're not knowing from one day to the next. But thanks be to God, that's not what God has for us as believers. He wants us to know that we have eternal life, that we are part of God's family, that he is indwelling us, that he is keeping us, that he will send us to the, uh, see us through to the end. Those whom he had predestined, 
He will go through those he will also glorify in every single step within the way. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture. So if there's any, any among us this morning that are perhaps doubting their salvation, maybe thinking to themselves, yes, I was saved by grace, but now it's up to me to maintain that by my works or by my obedience. Friends, look to Scripture. Look to the testimony which God has given to us here and be grateful. Aren't we grateful that our salvation is not ultimately in our hands? Aren't we thankful that regardless of what the rest of the day may hold for us, that we can truly rest assured that there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, as we bring the study to a close, as we reflect on the past three studies that we've looked at over the last three weeks, we are reminded of what? The tremendous work of the triune God accomplishing our salvation. We've been reminded of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit working together all for that same goal. And what is the primary reason for him doing so? The triune God? Well, we're told three times in this, in this book, haven't we? In this, in this portion of the letter. And we see it time and time again. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's to his own glory. And so friends, don't let anyone ever tell you that your salvation is somehow dependent or determined upon you or upon mankind because the testimony of Scripture says that it is not. But instead, our salvation is determined, is dependent upon God alone. So that who gets all the glory? Not us, but God.